You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Well, it's good to be back home. I had an enjoyable trip in Japan. I spent some time in Tokyo praying over the city. Uh, 30 million people in Tokyo proper, 37 million people beyond that. Uh, Just to kind of help you understand, uh, 30 million people is more than what we have in the state of Texas, and they just have that in Tokyo. And just spending time just kind of dreaming and thinking. Mustard Seed Network, who we've partnered with, is going to be planting four churches in the area. And, and so we're just so excited about what God's doing there in Japan. I, you've heard, this, heard me say this before, but there's only 1% of people in Japan that are Christians. 95% of the people in Japan hadn't even heard of Christ. And so spent some time there in Tokyo and then spent some time uh, in Nagoya encouraging uh, the church there. And, and I can just tell you, it just did my heart well to see how this church that over 10 years ago, I guess, that we started supporting, it was a small little church. And now they've grown to two services. Uh, they had like 30 or 40 little kids everywhere uh, there at the services. And uh, they're just doing well. And so we're just so excited with our partnership with them. I, I would encourage you to continue to pray for Andy and the Church in Nagoya and Mustard Seed Network as they are continuing to turn uh, Japan upside down for Christ. And so just keep them in your prayers. I, I want to kind of piggyback on one of the things that Richard mentioned uh, life groups are so important here. Uh, you know, some of my closest friends are part of my life group. Uh, these are people that, that I pray with, that I think about, that I check on, and, and we all need community in our life. Uh, that's one of the special things here at Castle Hills is our friendships. And, and uh, if, you don't, if you haven't got a chance to be involved with the life group, I would encourage you, uh, take a few moments after the service, go ahead and sign up at, on the glass table, and, and just check out a few of them. And, and maybe a night of the week doesn't work out for you. Well, then make, maybe make it a goal to go to one of our Bible studies uh, on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Uh, or come on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. But, but it's important to have that sense of community, uh, to live life together, to study God's Word together. We all want to change to be like Christ. And, and we do that through community. I guess it was back in the ni- late 1960s, 70s, that... China decided that they needed to construct a bunch of bunkers that could uh, withstand a nuclear blast. And and so they constructed about 10,000 of these in Beijing. And then it became the 80s, and they said, well, you know, we have all these bunkers that aren't being used. I think we could make some money off of these. And so they began leasing these to landlords. And, and these landlords began to, to lease these out, and there's about a million people today that actually live in bunkers in Beijing. There's about 10,000 of them, a million people living there. And, and, and these bunkers, they have electricity and they have plumbing, but the ventilation is poor. It's not the most clean place in the world to, to have to live. I mean, they share bathrooms and, and kitchens. 
It's not very sanitary. Uh, most of the people that live there are migrant workers, are, are students, are those who are extremely poor. But day in and day out, that's where they live. And, and, and I would say that Bonkers really isn't a place that we want to live in. It, it, it's not an enjoyable place. Back in World War I, the Germans were driven back by the Allied forces. And, and so they had to come up with a way to, to go against the Allied forces. They needed to do something. They kept on getting driven back further and further and further. And so then they began to dig these little holes, and they would put three or four people there, and then they would put machine guns there, and then they began to slaughter lots and lots of Allied forces. Well, what the Allied forces did in response is they began to dig holes because, of course, they didn't want to be shot. They began to dig these little bunkers. And instead of little holes, eventually these holes ended up turning into a whole line of bunkers, about 35,000 miles that went anywhere from, I believe, the English Channel to Switzerland. And so you had bunkers on this side, and then you had bunkers on this side. And in front of them, they would put barbed wire and they put obstacles because no one, you didn't want anyone getting into your bunker. But this was the only place that they felt like they could be safe in because the enemy would be shooting and, and so you'd be over here. And, and then eventually they began to bomb the bunkers and they began to shoot tear gas and so you had to wear, uh, you had to have a mask ready. And, and so basically you had this going back and forth, back and forth. And, and people thought that they could find safety in, in the bunkers. Now, between the bunkers is what we call no man's land. No man's land, again, had the barbed wire, had all these things. And not only did you have to worry about the enemy, but you also had to worry about friendly fire. So no one wanted to be caught out in no man's land. I mean, this was the most dangerous area that you could possibly be in. And so people would hunker down and they thought, man, bunkers are the safest place to be at. But you might be surprised that thousands and thousands of soldiers actually died in bunkers. See, there was constant water filling up these bunkers, sewage and other things, and, and your boots could only protect you so much, so they had to worry about trench foot and frostbite. They had to worry about decaying corpus or bodies. They, they had viruses that spread. And many, many, many people died in the trenches. They died in bunkers. See, bunkers are no way to live. Yet many people today live in bunkers. Some of you in this room may even live in a bunker. And I'm not talking about doomsday bunkers. And I'm not talking about golf bunkers. Some of you, you've played golf and that's where you land out a whole lot. If I played golf, I'm sure that's where I would be camped out. No, I'm talking about the bunkers that we run to when we disagree with someone. We disagree, and, and then we tend to run into our little bunker, and, and we find people that we agree with, and, and, and we see the other person as an enemy. And, and, and then we began to shout and say insults and kind of go back and forth, <coughs> throw verbal grenades. There's bunkers in our society. I think we know that. There's political bunkers. There's 
gun control. We can jump into bunkers. Hey, I'm for it. I'm against it. Health insurance. How do we, can, can we protest during the national anthem? We know that that really put a lot of people into bunkers. We've seen it. We've seen bunkers in the church. How do I worship? Can I, can I raise my hands? Can I sway? Can I dance? And certain people will say, yes, you can. And then other people will say, no, you need to be more stoic. And you can't express yourself whatsoever. Some people will say, well, baptism is essential. And other people will say, baptism's not. Some people will kind of fall into the creation evolution bunker. And they'll begin firing out off at each other. We've, we've had people fall into bunkers when it comes to the Holy Spirit and tongues and, hey, are you a church that believes in the Holy Spirit and do you speak in tongues? And, and we've seen people go back and forth. We, we, we have a culture that automatically just kind of jumps in to bunkers. I, I've seen churches that have split because two groups of people, or sometimes even three groups of people, have gotten into bunkers and they've said, hey, I believe this and, and this other group believes this. And then they just began firing off at each other. I was at the beach this summer, and, and I was reading a, a book about Michelle Obama. And I was just minding my own business, and my relative came up and says, Why are you reading that book? I said, Well, because I like to read. Do you like to read? And... And what, ha what happened during this discussion is I quickly realized, she was like, well, if you're reading that book, that must mean that you fall in line with this political party. And I said, well, actually, I just like to read about presidents and their families, and, and I just enjoy reading and learning more things. And, and what I quickly realized in that discussion was my relative was in a bunker. And she thought anyone that would read a book that she might possibly disagree with their politics, that she couldn't do that. That was, that was wrong. Now, I'm picking on my relative, but I think we all have bunkers that we are tempted to run into that we might even be in this morning. My, my friend Brian Jennings wrote a great little book called Dancing in No Man's Land. Brian is the pastor. He's a pastor in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, and he's actually going to be here in two weeks. But in this book, it talks about how, as a culture, we run into bunkers instead of actually walking out into no man's land and talking about issues, of, of looking at healthy ways to deal with conflict. And one of the things that he encourages us to do is to think about, how did Christ deal with conflict? How did Jesus deal with conflict? How did he deal with people who didn't agree with him? How did he deal with enemies? Compared especially to our culture that tends to be overly harsh. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 14 and 15. We're going to spend just a little bit of time in Acts chapter 14 and in Acts chapter 15. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to the community of believers... Well, we have the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and then you're going to see the book of Acts. And, and what we're going to see is Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. And they come back, and they're very excited. 
Now, if you don't know a whole lot about Paul, Paul was a guy that used to be in a bunker. He was really against Christianity. I mean, he went and persecuted Christians, but then God got his attention and, and changed his view of life drastically. And so we come to the end of chapter 14. It says, upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together. This is Paul and Barnabas. They called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he opened up the door of faith to the who? To the Gentiles too. Now this is, this is a key phrase as we're going to enter into Acts chapter 15. And so God is doing amazing things. They come back and they're excited. Hey, guess what? Uh, man, God has opened up the door to this new people group, this, to the Gentiles. But then there's always a but. There's always someone that wants to throw cold water on things, right? I mean, there's always someone that wants to be negative. And, and that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 15. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from who? From Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be what? Saved. So if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Paul and Barnabas... They disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some of the local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about the question, about this question. Now, now let me kind of lay it out for you. We, we have these Jewish Christians who wanted to follow the law of Moses who said, to be saved, you had to be circumcised. And then you had Paul and Barnabas over here that said, no, it's by grace alone that you're saved. You don't have, we don't have to follow those laws anymore. So they come together, and the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem. They stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy, what? That the... Gentiles, too, were being converted. Again, good news. Let's keep on reading. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders, and they reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, so Jewish Christians from Judea, from the sect of Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be what? Circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. And so here we are. Man, they, they, we got two bunkers right here. And so the apostles and elders, they met together to resolve the issue. And at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them and follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago, to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed in their hearts through faith. So why, are you, so why are you now challenging God by burning the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. Now, we, we, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, 
this passage may seem a little odd to you. Like, what is the big deal with this group of people that is insisting that circumcision has to take place? I mean, that kind of sounds strange to us. I mean, we're like, hey, of course, it's by what Jesus Christ did on the cross that saves us. But back then, you got to understand that Jews were raised under the law. And, and I think it was Cy Hoffler with College, College Heights Christian Church that pointed out there was four main things that Jews really cared about. Kosher food, Sabbath keeping, temple worship, and circumcision. And, and their beliefs had basically been assaulted in the book of Acts. Some of those things were being challenged. If you look in Acts chapter 2, guess what? Instead of meeting in the temple, they were meeting in homes. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius, and, and Peter just, the passage that we just read kind of mentions this, is that all of a sudden God opens up the door and says, hey, it's not the food that makes you unclean. It, it, it's about your heart. And yes, the Gentiles can, can be a part of God's kingdom. We're going to see here in Acts chapter 14 and 15 that, that this whole attitude about circumcision is challenged. And, and, and we're going to, to see that, man, they've been in this bunker for so long, and they're like, hey, this is what we feel like Christianity should be like. I mean, they need to be like us. I mean, we'll accept them, but they need to clean up. They need to be circumcised. Brian Jennings in his book says that there are three main things that normally lead people to bunkers. Fear, pride, and hate. And, and I wonder if this group of believers, this, this, these Jews, that they feared eating with these dirty Gentiles who weren't circumcised. It, it, it was forbidden in the law for them to do this. And so what is God going to think about me if I eat with this Gentile who's not circumcised? And I, I also think there was some pride there, like, hey, all good Jews, we've been circumcised on the eighth day. And so now, these Gentiles who aren't circumcised, they get in? That doesn't necessarily seem fair. I, I don't know if they had any hate, but I know that they, there was definitely a disagreement. We do know that hate does lead people into bunkers. I mean, all we have to think about are Racist groups such as KKK, you think about terrorists, we know that various groups can definitely go down that track into to bunkers because of any of these three things, fear, pride, and hate. And, and, and so what we end up having, though, is these two bunkers, but then we have some people who came together, and then they did this amazing thing. They, they actually sat down, and they had a discussion, which is kind of rare, right? I mean, most people, that, that's hard for, for people to do. Sometimes we're like, you know what? I really just don't want to deal with this conflict. I, I, I really just don't want to, to talk to someone who disagrees with me. But we're going to see that the elders and the leaders of the church, they came together and they sat down and they said, you know what? This is, what we, this is what we see. We, we, we see that God accepts the Gentiles. That, that's good news for us, by the way, because we're Gentiles. He says, hey, let's get out of our bunkers, and we're going to sit down, we're going to have a discussion, and we're going to try to understand, and we're going to try to figure this out. 
And so these Jewish believers end up learning that, guess what? The gospel is not about circumcision. It's about what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And, and, and then we come to verses 19 to 21, and, and we're going to see that these elders and this group of leaders actually listen to another perspective. James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, gets up, and he speaks, and he says, so it's my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city and on every on every Sabbath for many generations. And I read this passage, and I'm like, but I didn't think food mattered, and I didn't think all this stuff mattered. I thought it was just by grace alone. And then, then James says this, and this is what I think is happening, is we had some back and forth going on as these people met in no man's land. And, and, and the Jewish Christians said, you know, something that's really hard for us is when we see Gentiles hanging around pagan worship, idols, and things like this. And, and I think the leader said, you know what? I see your point. And I could see how this might be harmful in their relationship uh, with Christ. And so James says, guess what? You know, you know that food that's sacrificed to idols that they take off and then they resell it? I know you don't think it's a big deal, but we see it as pagan worship. Would you not do that for us? And, and then sexual immorality, you know the temple prostitutes that are around? That, that's going on with pagan worship? Stay away from that stuff. And, and then, like, drinking of blood, we see that as pagan worship. Could you abstain from that? And, and like, strangled animals, like, there's, there's blood in the food? Would you not do that for us? See, we had two groups that met in no man's land that sat down and listened and talked back and forth and began to look at each other's viewpoint. And some decisions were, were made. And we see this beautiful picture of people actually walking out and working through conflict. I know it will surprise you, but from time to time, we have conflict here at Castle Hills Christian Church. And, and, and there will be times that we will be tempted to, to, to get into our bunkers. And we'll say, hey, I believe this, and, and I believe that. And, and there's a temptation, though, to, to kind of fire back at each other. But something that a long time ago that our leadership has made a priority, it's an old restoration, an old restoration saying that you're going to see come up on screen. It says, an essential is unity, and non-essential is liberty, and all things love. You know what? We don't have to agree on, on everything. But one of the things that we want to do as a church is we want to love each other. We want to love each other. One, one of my friends, he was talking about so often, Christians are quick to jump into bunkers and tell how we disagree with how someone's living or what they're doing. And, and, and we shout it, but we don't always actually meet people in no man's land to have conversations. I... I've told you this before, but there's a, 
abortion clinic that I drive by on the way to church almost every day. And, and, and this group of people, I, I'm sure they're doing a noble work. They, they hold signs up and they pray and they're singing and they're yelling. But I've also wondered, and, and, and this, is, this is guilt on my part, I need to actually stop and talk with them. But I've also wondered, have they ever taken the opportunity to sit and talk to someone who's had an abortion? Who's even thinking about having an abortion? Or are they just quickly, hey, let me just hold up this sign? See, I have talked to people, and it's given me a whole different perspective. It's given me a much tender heart, and the things that like, I would be yelling and saying would be much kinder. And, and, and maybe some of these people have done that, and again, I'm not against their ministry. I'm sure it's making an impact. But my point here is it's much easier to jump into a bunker without knowing someone else's perspective. And so this morning I started kind of thinking, how can we not, how can we get out of our bunkers? And I just want to encourage you, don't stand in a bunker, but walk into man, no man's land. And, and what does that look like? So I want to give you three, three things to do. Pray that God would show you the bunkers that you're living in. That's what I've been praying over the past couple of weeks. It's been pretty convicting. There's a lot more bunkers that I had that I've been living in than what I realize. Secondly, pray for the people that you disagree with. Here's something odd that you'll kind of find out. You know, the people that, when you, once you start praying for the people that you disagree with, you can't help but love them a little bit more. You know, those people that, like, man, they just irritate you, and you're like, man, I don't understand where they're coming from, and uh, uh. And then God, you start praying for them every day, and you're like, oh, they're also God's child. Or they need to be God's child. And then lastly, I want to challenge you to do this. Eat with someone you disagree with on a topic. Eat with someone you disagree with on a topic. And here's the thing. Don't do all the talking. I want you to listen. And I want you to try to understand. See, as a church, when we began to do that, I actually, it's going to give us a bigger voice into other people's lives so that we can plant seeds, so that we can water seeds, that we can help people come to know Christ. See, I think living in no man's land is much better, even though it's difficult and it takes courage. It's much better than being in a bunker, seeing other people as the enemy. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage to walk into no man's land. Help us as, as a church, as we look for opportunities to, to minister to others. Help us to take the time to listen and to speak words of love and gentleness and kindness. Lord, help us to keep our convictions, but help us to also to show grace and love in the midst of our convictions. Lord, put people in our path that we can minister to. Help us to have conversations this week with someone that we might disagree with and, and saw, or, uh, give us words that, that can show love and kindness. In your precious holy name, amen.